Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 34. The word of God speaks to us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in... Did I skip? Nope. For, it's a long one today. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. For when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subject, subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Katie. Hey, I was actually thinking that verse 28, if you could just read that 10 times fast, all the subjection to him, that'd be amazing. Hey, uh, how we doing, guys? Is Dylan Watson here? He already left. Dylan has left the building. Hey, I just want to give it up for our kids team all over again. Brittany Crowley, where's she at over here? VBS was amazing this week. And... Um, and the fact that those guys are leading us into mission with families is, is a big deal. So if your family was a part of this, if your kids were a part of this this week as mine were, uh, I trust they were blessed and encouraged. And you guys had date night four times this week. Amazing, amazing. Hey, it's been a while since I've been here with you. I think it's been a month since I've been in the pulpit here downtown. And I've missed you guys. Uh, if you're new, you're like, who are you, right? Uh, my name is Chad Kinsar. I serve as one of our pastors, teaching pastor here downtown. I've been out for a couple of weeks of vacation and a couple of weeks visiting other congregations. And it's been fun to see what God is doing around the orbit of our frontline churches. Uh, I've been in Shawnee and in Edmond and South. And a fun report coming out of Shawnee, just a, a way to hear what God is doing outside of our little tank here downtown. They have baptized in that congregation more people to date this year than all of last year combined. Uh, so it's a big deal. God's doing amazing things in Shawnee, and it's fun to get to spread around what the evidences of grace of God doing in our churches. So um, tonight, or tonight, whatever time it is, thank you, New York, wherever we are. Um, this morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 34. We've been in this book for the better part of a year, and we've got a few weeks before we wrap it up. So if you've got a Bible, open to that passage, and if you please pray for me, I'll pray for you. And we'll see how God would shape us by his word. Father, we come before your word. And um, there's a lot of ways that we're coming into this room. And we come to a moment of open Bible. But I think even for the person in the room today who's not sure yet what they believe about scripture. 
there is an expectation that you speak. And so for the one who is most expectant in the room and for the one who's least expectant in the room, God, I pray that we wouldn't just encounter the next 30 minutes my voice. Who cares? Father, I pray that over the next 30 minutes we would encounter being addressed by you. Your word is living and active. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It's able to give us that moment where we would say, how did you know? And so, Father, I pray that we would feel known by you through an encounter with your word today. So, Holy Spirit, would you please speak? Before we're done praying, I would ask that if you're up for it, just there privately and personally ask that God would speak to you today. Ask that he would help you to understand his word. And if you would, please pray for me that what we talk about would make sense. Father, thank you for these next moments. We pray they glorify your son, Jesus. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen, amen. One of the things that my wife and I get to do here in our church is serve with Brian and Myrna Elliott in their ministry to those who are like walking through engagement and newly married. They have our preparing for marriage class and we get to serve in their ministry. There's so many in our church in their 20s. I look out and I see so many of you. There's so many in our church that are walking through seasons of life that are dating, dating seriously, moving toward engagement and marriage. And we love being a part of that ministry. And one of the things I always tell guys when I sit down with them in our mentoring sessions is this, hey, it's not gonna be long in your marriage before you learn things about the tone of your voice that you never knew before. You're gonna learn things that you never knew before by the tone of your voice. Before I got married, I never questioned the tone of my voice. Never once questioned it. I thought about the things I was saying and I tried to be respectful best I knew how. I thought about the things I was saying and I tried to use words and even a tone that I thought represented what I was trying to say. I never questioned the tone of my voice before being married. Before being married, had you asked me about the tone of my voice, I would have looked at you and thought, why would you ask such a weird question? I have a wonderful tone of voice. It's inviting, it's friendly. On Sundays, it occasionally puts people to sleep. Like I've got an amazing tone of voice. But then I got married. And I'm probably exaggerating a bit here, but it felt like the better part of the first three years of marriage were me figuring out I can't say anything the right way. I can't see, I can say the right words, but I'm using the wrong tone. I like the dress needs to sound like you really like the dress, right? And so you married brothers in the room, you can probably take the words out of my mouth. You can finish the phrase. It's not so much what you said, but it's how you said it. And that's certainly true for how we communicate together. Like not just what we say, but the tone we use communicates meaning. If that's true for how we communicate together, it's also true for how we understand the burden and message of Scripture. God's word does not come to us. God's voice in Scripture does not come to us monotone. The Bible is not monotone. There's a rise and there's a fall in pitch. There's a rise and there's a fall in mood. And that's especially true in our passage today. There's only one imperative. 
in the passage that was just read. 15 verses, one command. There's only one action step Paul is asking of us today. One thing that he wants us to do in light of what he's saying. There's a lot of things he's going to tell us, a lot of things that we should know, a lot of things that will address us. But he's only asking of us one thing. And his burden is captured in this singular command. It's a command that you might have missed as Katie was reading the passage just a moment ago. It's not always caught at first glance. But when you see this command, I'll introduce it to you here in a second. When you see this command, not only is the burden of this passage clear, you can't mistake the tone that Paul is using when he says it. You can't mistake his tone. You can't say the words he's about to say monotone. The words he says come with fire. Our passage isn't only about what's being said today, but the urgency of how it's being said. And it comes, this command comes in the final verse of our passage. Look at what Paul says in verse 34. He says to the church, wake up from your drunken stupor. Those words are not monotone. That's not a phrase you drop casually or like Ben Stein, Bueller, right? Wake up from your drunken stupor, he says. He's imploring the church to wake up. This isn't bland. There's a fire in the apostle's heart as he offers these words. There's a fire in the heart of God that inspired the apostle to pen these words. Before the apostle can have a burden for the church, the burden comes first from God our Father for the church, then through the apostle. And so remember the context of what we're talking about in chapter 15. Paul is going to task on the centrality of the resurrection for the Christian gospel. This is a beautiful, sustained treatment of what is the resurrection, why does it matter, and how does it apply. But the reason that Paul's writing all of this, verse 12 tells us, is that because the church has started to deny the resurrection. To deny it, to actually with their words say, we don't believe this. And this is not a small problem. This is not a small problem. To tamper with the message of the resurrection is to tamper with the very foundation of Christianity. To take out the resurrection is not like taking out a minor block in a Jenga tower, but the whole thing still stands. To take out the resurrection of Jesus, the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus, is to cause the entire tower to fall at once. That was our passage last week in verses 12 to 19. And this is why Paul is offering urgency and tone to the church in this passage to say, wake up, wake up. Wake up from all the places that you've become so familiar with the resurrection that you're no longer stunned by it and amazed. Where has the resurrection become something that you relegate to pastels in one Sunday in April or May but never again thought about the rest of the year. Paul says, wake up. You're standing in front of a lion, but you're unaware and acting as though it's a domesticated kitten. Wake up. Wake up from all the places where you're tempted to adjust what you believe because it doesn't square with your intellect and it seems as though to adjust would better handle your doubts. Paul says, wake up. Wake up from the places that you're tempted to adjust what you believe to make it more palatable. Does anyone actually raise from the dead after all to make it more palatable in an unbelieving world? Paul says, wake up. 
And so we're going to actually unpack this command in the rest of the passage around two turns today. We'll actually deal with the second half of the passage first and the first half second. So in verses 29 to 34, we'll look at the Corinthian hypocrisy and ours. And then second, we'll look at the beauty and the power of the resurrection. And so part of what Paul is doing in this passage is he's trying to reason with the Corinthians on the basis of their denial of the resurrection. And he's trying to do this reasoning with them. If you say that Christ isn't raised as you say he's not, then he's doing this line of reasoning to show them how incoherent, how hypocritical, and how foolish their denial of the resurrection is. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says, otherwise. And in the context, that means if what you claim is true, that there is no resurrection, otherwise, well, then what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? He asks them. If the dead aren't raised, as you say they're not, then tell me why are people being baptized on their behalf? Paul is calling out here in this question what seems to be a common practice in the Corinthian church for people to baptize themselves on behalf of loved ones or friends who had passed away, and they're baptizing themselves on behalf of the dead in hopes of mystically transferring to them some kind of blessing or having some effect to secure for them through a vicarious baptism salvation being baptized on behalf of the dead. There's been a lot of ink spilled trying to figure out what exactly is going on here and why they were practicing this. One scholar I came across this week said that he had researched 40 different explanations of what was happening in first century Corinth. None of them squared together. I'm not going to run through those 40 explanations with you. But the point being, there's no real conclusion on the matter, except that we know that they were actually doing this. They were baptizing one another on behalf of their dead. And the other thing that makes this strange is that this practice of being baptized for the deceased doesn't show up historically or biblically anywhere else. This was something that the Corinthians alone had fabricated. And so what's interesting, the bizarre nature of this whole practice actually serves the point that Paul is making to expose their hypocrisy. In 29, he says, listen, guys, if the dead aren't raised like you say they're not, then why are you being baptized for them? He's appealing to the incoherence of their own logic, the hypocrisy to say, you don't believe this, but yet you're doing this. What, what blessing would you hope to pass on to the dead? What salvation would you hope to secure for the dead if death is the end? He's saying, verse 33, don't you see that you're being deceived? He says, bad company ruins good morals. This is not the apostle quoting your mom as she's concerned about the friends you're making in middle school. Right? He's actually, what he's doing is he's quoting for them a popular line from first century Roman theater. Bad company ruins good morals. As if to say, don't you see, you're actually being more persuaded by the ideologies of your culture than you are from the gospel you claim to believe. Without realizing it, you're being deceived. You've lost the gospel and now you're justifying bizarre practices that are incoherent with the world around you. Rome wasn't practicing that. And they're incoherent with the church. Christians and other churches have never practiced this. Your hypocrisy has actually made you incoherent. But that's always what hypocrisy does. Drift makes us incoherent. 
Now, we've got to know the Corinthian hypocrisy in order to understand our own hypocrisy around the resurrection. Because our hypocrisy with the resurrection doesn't show up the same way theirs did. We don't have anybody coming to our baptism classes, raising their hand to say, hey, actually, I'm not here for my baptism. Thank you, Pastor Reiner. I'm actually here if you could explain to me how I could pass on a blessing to my past loved one. We don't have anyone doing that. That's not our hypocrisy. And so their hypocrisy was a hypocrisy with words. They say they don't believe, and yet they do. Our hypocrisy is the other way around. We say we believe, and yet we don't do. We don't do. Let me tease it out this way. We confess the resurrection is true, but isn't it true that an honest assessment of our lives would suggest that you and I have bought way more into a vision of the good life that looks like consumerism than it does by being formed by the gospel we claim to believe. We claim the resurrection is true, but consumerism is what we ask to hold the weight of our life. Think about the things that cause you on a given day. Think about the things that cause you to either feel validated or defeated. Think about the things that you most look to as a release from stress. Think about the things that you look to to hold the weight of your life. Here's what I'm trying to point at. How much of the answer to those questions has to do with your bank account? Me too. Me too. How much of the answer to those questions has to do with your ability to keep up with or exceed the experiences and vacations of the people you work with or the people that you run with to feel either validated or defeated in your ability to keep up or not with your crew? How much of your ongoing pursuit of peace, how much of your ongoing pursuit of peace has more to do with something that you can purchase rather than what Christ has purchased for you in his death and resurrection. You see, like, none of us would say, I am asking stuff to hold the weight of my life, but doesn't the artifacts reveal it? Don't the artifacts reveal it? We could go on, maybe consumerism isn't the thing for you. Maybe your vision of the good life is social standing. How much of how you feel about yourself rises or falls based on a particular person or a group of people's acceptance or rejection of you? We could keep running down the list of other versions of the good life that we go after to hold the weight of our lives. All the while, here's what happens for us. The resurrection of Jesus sits there as a side accessory sentimental value, something that we say we believe, but very little of our life revolves around. Very little of our time is spent thinking about it. I'm asking something else to hold the weight of my life. This is just sort of a well-rounded spirituality to proclaim. And what ends up happening in our hypocrisy is that our lives end up being hardly distinguishable from the world around us who doesn't believe the resurrection at all. And this is what Paul's getting at at the end of the passage to say, there are some who have no knowledge of God, and the reason they have no knowledge of God is because of the church's hypocrisy. And he says the last line of 34, and I say that to your shame. You claim a resurrection, but your lives are empty. 
They didn't claim a resurrection, but they were trying to make up for it. Hypocrisy made them incoherent. And so Paul says, wake up. Wake up from the stupor of these lying visions of the good life that you've placed at the center and the resurrection to the side. Wake up. Wake up, he appeals. And then he goes on in verse 32 and he appeals to his own life. He says, hey, what gain do I have, humanly speaking, if I fight with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead aren't raised? If the resurrection isn't true, Paul says, then why am I enduring persecution for it? If the resurrection's not true, why am I suffering for proclaiming it? I love that he points this out. If the resurrection isn't true, then why run the risk of identifying as a Christian? Wouldn't it just be easier to stay out of harm's way? And we don't really face that in our part of the world, but, but if the resurrection isn't true, then what has been the enduring strength of the persecuted church around the globe for 2,000 years? If the resurrection isn't true, then why hasn't this gospel been washed out? Why hasn't it just been stomped out? Why are Christians around the globe in persecuted countries still meeting in underground churches if the resurrection's not true? If the resurrection isn't true, he ends verse 32 by quoting the pagan anthem. He says, if the dead aren't raised, then let us eat and let us drink because none of this matters and tomorrow we die. If the resurrection isn't true, Paul contends, then maybe the atheists are right. God is dead. But this is where our passage makes a turn today. The pagan anthem isn't true. The epicenter of Paul's burden and the reason for his call to wake up is in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The biggest but in all of the Bible. But Christ has been raised, in fact, from the dead. This is central to Christian proclamation, central to Christian confession. The resurrection is the hub and the Christian vision for the good life that makes the whole thing turn. This has the power to hold the weight of your life. It's not just a good thing to claim to believe in in hopes of covering your bases. This has the power to hold the weight of your life with nothing else attached. This alone. And this is what Paul unpacks for us in the next eight verses. Paul's going to tell us four things the resurrection means. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus tells us something about your future resurrection. Your future resurrection. Look again in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits. The resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He calls the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits of the dead. The first fruits. He uses this agricultural term. First fruits is, means the, the first evidence of a crop that starts to show up. The first evidence of a bloom that starts to show up in a crop gives evidence to the farmer of the harvest to come. I know this because clearly I'm a farmer. But my father-in-law is. And every spring when wheat starts to come out of its dormant period around late April, my father-in-law is able to get an idea of the harvest that is to come in early June. The first fruits are the preview of what you can expect for the rest. And this is what the resurrection of Jesus is for all those who belong to Jesus. 
The resurrection of Jesus, the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus is a preview of your coming resurrection, Christian. In the same way that he was raised from the dead, not just will you also be raised from the dead, but also the resurrection of all those who have died in faith. There's coming a day when Jesus will empty tombs. See, how does Paul know this? How can he say this with such assurance? Look at verse 21. He says, you know this, as by a man came death, and so also by a man comes the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. What Paul is getting at here is the economy of God for humanity. How God set things up. For humanity, there are two heads, two representatives for all humanity, Adam and Christ. Sin and death come into the world through Adam. Jesus is the promised one in Genesis 3 after Adam's fall who would one day come to undo the curse of sin. And so Adam is the head of fallen and sinful humanity and he brings an inheritance of death. And all of us feel that. And Jesus is the head of a new and redeemed humanity with an inheritance of resurrection and eternal life. And so here's how it works. All of us are born into Adam. All of us are. All of us are born into Adam. We're united to him. We're fallen just like him. We're sinful just like him. We're busted just like him. And because of what we inherit, because of our sinfulness and fallenness, along with our father Adam, we inherit his gift to us, death. Death. But God has made a way in Jesus for us to have a different inheritance. Here's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to say, I want the life that is pleasing to God. I want the life that is pleasing to God, and I believe the only place that you can find that is in the man, Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected from the dead. To be a Christian is to say, I want every bit of Jesus to count for every bit of me. I submit to Jesus. It is to say, I want a different inheritance I want the inheritance of Christ. I come under him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so think about how the inheritance works. You can't attain to the inheritance of Adam. You can't attain to that. You were born into it. Adam achieved the inheritance of death for you because of his own fallenness, and you come in behind him. In the same way, you can't attain to the inheritance of resurrection. You can't achieve it. You can't work toward it. You can't work toward Adam's inheritance. How could you work toward a better inheritance? You can't do that. You're fallen, busted, and broken. You need someone else to achieve it for you. And that's what Jesus has done in his death for sin and resurrection. You simply receive it by grace through faith. I want the life that is in Jesus to count for me. And so Paul says, for as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now this being made alive has an order, verse 23. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, all those who belong to Christ resurrected just like him, united to him, receiving the same inheritance that alone belongs to him. And so please hear this. If today you are in Christ... If today you have looked to Jesus and say, I want the inheritance that comes from you, your future resurrection from the dead has the power to hold the weight of your life. Here's why. 
because your future resurrection from the dead means there's never a scenario in your future where God won't be enough for you and he's gonna leave you holding the bag to provide for yourself. There's never gonna be a scenario in your present or in your future where God won't be enough for you, where he will eject on you. There's never gonna be that moment. Why? Because Christ, the first fruits, he didn't eject on Jesus, so he's not gonna eject on those united to Jesus. His resurrection is the foreshadow of your resurrection. You will not be left holding the bag in the same way that Christ wasn't. That has the power to hold the weight of your life. The second thing the resurrection tells us is of the sure end of all evil. The sure end of all evil. Pick up in 24. Then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign as he is right now until he has put all his enemies under his feet. I totally understand because I feel this way too that even though it doesn't feel so right now, all the evil and injustice in the world, even though it doesn't seem so right now, all of history is bending to Jesus. The resurrection, all of history is bending to Jesus. The resurrection assures us that all evil in this world is not unhinged, it's on a leash that evil just can't do whatever it wants to do. It's on a leash and everything that seems to be given a free pass right now, everyone who seems to just be getting away with it will on the great day be brought into judgment and set to right. There's coming a day when every rule, every authority, and every power that has ever stood opposed to the reign of Jesus will be trampled underneath his feet. And so listen, the resurrection's final verdict over the end of evil has the power to hold the weight of your life. It's not just something to believe, it actually can hold the weight of your life because even though it is easier said than done, the resurrection means you really can trust God's control in every situation of your life. Even suffering. You really can. The resurrection means you can trust God's control in every situation of your life, even suffering, maybe even more acutely said, suffering that you're enduring because of someone else's sin. You can still trust God's control. You see, how do you know? Exhibit A, Jesus, God's son. On Good Friday, it appeared evil had won. On Saturday, it's done. But on Sunday, there's a different story. There's a different story. Like, it appeared God was out of control. It appeared chaos had won. It appeared God couldn't be trusted until Easter Sunday. And even in the midst of suffering, God can be trusted. The resurrection is the assurance that evil will not get the last say. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus tells us that death will be Destroyed. Destroyed. Look at verse 26, a simple sentence. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not the way that God intended things to be. Jesus isn't indifferent to death. He hates it. 
Think about the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11 when Jesus calls Lazarus out of his tomb. John describes, La- John describes Jesus in that text as, quote, deeply moved before Lazarus' tomb. More accurately translated, he was filled with anger. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't angry at Mary and Martha for clamoring about why weren't you here. He wasn't angry at Lazarus for dying. Well, I guess I got to do something now. He wasn't even angry at himself for having shown up a few days late to his funeral. What Jesus was angry at standing before his friend's tomb was death itself. Jesus resonates with your cry and mine every time we're at a funeral and we look at a friend or a loved one and we say, it's not supposed to be this way. Jesus resonates with that. The resurrection means that Jesus has descended to the dead to defeat death itself on his own turf. The only thing left dead in the tomb of Jesus was death itself. He has defeated death, and at his return, he will empty the tombs of all those who belong to him, and death on that day will not just be defeated, it will be destroyed. Destroyed. And listen, This truth is strong enough to hold the weight of your life. It's not a side piece. It's not a religious accessory. It's strong enough to hold the weight of your life because it means that nothing and no one has the power to separate you from the love of God, not even death. You see how this ratchets up? The resurrection is assurance of your resurrection. That holds the weight of your life because it means that God will always be enough for you. The resurrection means that evil will come to an end. That means that you can actually trust the control of God in your life. That holds the weight of your life. Even here, even here, that nothing and no one can ever separate you from the presence of God. Here's number four in the finish today. The resurrection of Jesus tells us of the absolute authority of God over all things. Look at 27 and 28. It's a mouthful. Ask Katie. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He's quoting Psalm 8. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Paul has this weird little sentence that's clunky. And what he's trying to do is make sure that we have the nature of God right, that God the Father has put all things in subjection under God the Son, but God the Father is never in subjection to God the Son. That's what he means by that. 28, so when all things are subjected to him, Christ, well then the Son will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, God the Father, and the reason of that is so that God can be all in all. Crazy sentence, isn't it? Here's what Paul's driving at. The resurrection puts on display the absolute unrivaled authority of God over all things. There is nothing under which he is asking permission. All things are subjected to him. The biblical story is not a suspense narrative of good versus evil. The biblical story is a narrative of authority that assures us that the world will not be left to chaos. The world will not be left to chaos. There is a clear king. He's not voted on. He can't be unseated. 
He is undisputed and all things are subject to him. Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher, would say, there's not a single molecule bouncing in the cosmos apart from the command of our God. And so Paul says to all of this, here's the finish today. Wake up, guys, wake up. Wake up from the drunk narratives of this world. Wake up from the stupor of your own anxious thoughts that try to persuade you that God isn't there or that Jesus isn't who he says he is. Wake up. The tomb is empty. The resurrection is yours. The resurrection of Jesus has the power to deal with your past. It has the power to deal with your past. If the cross of Jesus is God writing a check for the debt of sin that you owe, the resurrection of Jesus is evidence that the check cleared. He broke the bars of your debt of sin. All the shame narratives that run in your head, all the narratives of failure and I'm not good enough, there is a world of comfort that can be brought to you by pressing the resurrection into the corners of your heart. The resurrection has the power to deal with your past. The resurrection has the power to command your future. You know the song we sing in Christ alone? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Jesus commands my destiny. The last I checked, when you're resurrected from the dead, whatever you want, you get. Whatever you say goes. And Jesus, your future is not up to what you do or what others do. It's up to the command of Jesus whose tomb is empty. The resurrection can deal with your past. It can command your future. The resurrection has the power to anchor you in the present. The empty tomb of Jesus, for those who claim it, reminds you who you belong to. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price, and his tomb is empty. And that has implications for every square inch of your life. Your marriage is now driven because of an empty tomb. God isn't dead. How you treat your spouse matters. It drives how you parent. God isn't dead, so how you steward the lives of your kids matters. God isn't dead, so how you show up to your cubicle tomorrow morning matters. God isn't dead, so how you handle the hidden parts of your life matters because he sees. God isn't dead. It reminds you who you belong to, and every part of your life matters. Verse 20, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I, um, I ask that you would do work in this room beyond the limitations of this sermon, where you would press the truth of the resurrection into every corner of our hearts. Every place where we doubt God, every place where we're tempted to take an off-ramp, every place where we wanna excuse ourselves from discipleship out of a release of stress, 
would you please press the resurrection into every corner of our life? Our sins are forgiven. You work for our good. And you're never going to leave us holding the bag. Thank you that the empty tomb could mean so much. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.